0: Welcome to the willie jackerson experiment i'm your host the one the only willie jackerson oh, nice all right so we got a really good show for you guys um i have a facebook group called conspiracy theories and i'm always just joking around on there and uh, we're posting up just like funny stuff and Um, you know, there's a lot of probably really serious conspiracy theories, but I, for the most part, just think a lot of them are really kind of just funny. And, you know, it gets you to kind of think of these like really serious topics. Um, one of them being, you know, the Adam and Eve story, the, you know, where did humans come from? Where, where we planted here from, you know, where we planted here by aliens, um, you know, did we actually evolve here on earth did life just spark and so i thought it was really cool and it was pretty funny i was uh kind of strolling through the comments i saw my buddy post one where he says god created adam and eve not adam and steve and i just thought that was hilarious and you know like i say that's fine you know whatever anyone's personal choice is, is is fine by me you know it's it is what it is you know um but i just thought that was funny and And I kind of thought, you know what, I need to do an episode on, you know, where did where did man come from, you know, and and, you know, I was kind of reading some of the stuff on the um, Garden of Eden story. And 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 it was pretty interesting. And, you know, probably there's a lot of stuff that probably has truth to it. I know uh, I did one on, you know, where the number six, six, six came from. And, uh, you know, that's in my number of the beast episode, which I thought was pretty cool. And, uh, you know, I, le- I learn a lot every time I do these, so um, it's pretty cool. And, you know, I'm not trying to, you know, make up anybody's mind as far as, you know, changing their belief on anything. I just I just think it's fun to do these and um, just go through some stuff and, um, and, you know, learn a few things along the way. But, um, you know, ultimately, I believe we are all Stardust, regardless of how it happened or how the Stardust arranged to make it up what we are today so you know i'll always believe in the universe and uh i always will believe that we are all just made up of a bunch of stardust so hope you enjoy this episode for a
1: man to ignore his wife and stay up in the basement at three o'clock in the morning clicking on pornography i've seen too much. i ain't playing fornication, homosexuality, transgenderism, bestiality, I've watched it, I've seen too much, hours and hours in my office, that means always, every day and every night, I'm a code teller, yes I'm saying it, a perversity that needs to come out, when in gal, cast it out, and I'm hot, fornication, pornography, adultery, every day and every night, homosexuality, transgender. Lally, transgenderism, BC Alley. I'm watching. I've seen too much Hours and hours in my office That means always, every day and every night Get out Stinking witch, we ain't playing your witchcraft games We ain't playing with you for the Freemasons We ain't afraid of you, you stinking witch You devil worshiping Satan is witch We cast you out In the name of Jesus Christ We break your spells We break your curse We got your first name We got your last name We even got an address for one of you Sexuality, transgenderism, PC Alley. Watch it. I've seen too much. Hours and hours in my office. That means always, every day, and every night. Well, I've been preaching the gospel for forty years. Let me tell you something, forty-year gospel man. I'll call you out right now in the name of God, and not even break a sweat. You're afflicted by a demon. Shut up. Come out. Come out. Come out. This uncircumcised Philistine. Who does he think he is? This uncircumcised. He's a thief. He's a liar, he's the problem, he's the snake. This uncircumcised, he, 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 he's the same as a lion and a bear, he doesn't have any cover to a god. I'll kill him. Now you come down from your place of authority.
2: You get down from there. We are the most complex creature on this planet. A big brain, two-legged mammal. We've risen from the raw materials of the earth to dominate and shape it. Wind the clock backwards, and the story of how we got to be us is a puzzle that defies all logic. Through nearly four billion years of evolutionary twists and turns, disasters strike, predators threaten to wipe us out, From rodent to reptile, we face extinction at every turn. From the land into the water, fighting to survive every step of the way. From fish to worm, back to the very first spark of life. To a single, simple cell. This is the most extraordinary, improbable story ever told, the story of mankind rising."
3: The Garden of Eden is one of the most famous settings in the Bible, a peaceful garden oasis God created as a home for Adam and Eve before they made a dumb mistake that got them evicted. Here's the untold truth of the Garden of Eden. The main appearance of the Garden of Eden in the canonical Bible is, of course, in the book of Genesis, during the second account of creation that begins in chapter 2. Verse 8 says, "...and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed." If you know of the Garden of Eden at all, you probably know the Genesis narrative. Eden was the place where God made a home for the first humans, filled with all sorts of plants and animals, including the famous Tree of the Knowledge of Good and Evil, which Adam and Eve were specifically instructed not to eat from.
2: "...this is the Tree of Knowledge, from its branches you shall not eat."
1: "...are you saying that in like a, I suggest you don't, or in like a definitely don't?"
3: People being people, of course, they went ahead and did it anyway. God kicked them out of the garden, leaving behind angels to keep the now-sinful humans from having access to the Tree of Life. Adam and Eve subsequently invented the idea of working for a living and raised children who invented the concept of murder. Of course, humans didn't just come up with this terrible idea themselves, no. It was the serpent who convinced Eve to go give that apple a whirl. She not only ate the fruit, of course, but also shared it with Adam, bringing about the fall of man and leading to their expulsion from the garden. According to the Bible, this is why, in short, Life sucks, and then you die. So what's the deal with the serpent? Well, popular modern interpretation commonly teaches that the serpent was actually the devil in disguise. In fact, for Christians, God's promise to the serpent that Eve's offspring would crush him is a prophecy foretelling Jesus' ultimate victory over Satan in the end times. One problem, though. The Eden serpent was not actually Satan. How do we know? Well, according to biblical archaeology, when the book of Genesis was composed, The idea of the devil hadn't even been invented yet. The idea of a powerful supernatural force who opposes God didn't develop until several hundred years after Genesis was written. Whoops. According to Genesis 3.24, when God drove Adam and Eve out of Eden, he placed cherubim and a flaming, spinning sword at the east entrance to keep humans from ever entering the garden again. A flaming sword is pretty easy to picture, but what are cherubim? Nowadays, we tend to think of cherubs as chubby angel babies thanks to their having been conflated with cupids and putti from Roman mythology and Italian art. The cherubim in the Bible are, uh, somewhat different. Cherubim are often described in Ezekiel as mashups of humans, oxen, eagles, and lions, beings who hold up God's throne and move unflinchingly forward like unturning chariot wheels. This likely relates to the statues of Cherubim on the Mercy Seat, which was the cover of the Ark of the Covenant where God himself was known to sit. The Jewish Encyclopedia suggests the idea of enormous beings of great power without human emotion as representatives of gods and protectors of holy spaces is an ancient Semitic belief that can also be found in the winged bulls and lions at Babylonian and Assyrian temple entrances. According to the Jewish Encyclopedia, for the scholars behind the Jewish theological writings known as the Talmud and the esoteric school of Jewish mysticism known as Kabbalah, there are actually two Gardens of Eden. One of these is the earthly garden where Adam and Eve lived and ate fruit and played with penguins or whatever, and the other is a celestial paradise where the immortal souls of the righteous live. These two concepts are distinguished by referring to a lower and higher Garden of Eden, or calling the earthly location Gan. Garden, and the Heavenly One, Eden. As the Jewish Encyclopedia explains, various apocalyptic writings describe Eden as a place for the righteous who suffer innocently, who do works of benevolence and walk without blame before God. Those who make it to the celestial Eden will wear clothes made of light and enjoy the immortality that comes from the tree of life. The wicked will suffer sevenfold punishment, while the righteous will enjoy sevenfold happiness, living in mansions and walking with God, who leads them in dance. A question that has been asked and debated for centuries is the location of the physical Garden of Eden. After all, if you knew there was a place with talking animals, a flaming sword, and a tree that could let you live forever, you'd want to at least grab an Instagram selfie there. Naturally, the biblical account is the starting place for most people who assume the garden was more than a metaphor. Genesis chapter 2 says Eden had a river flowing out of it that spread into four branches. Two are identified as the Tigris and Euphrates in modern-day Iraq. But the other two have been a little harder to pin down. Traditionally, the third river is believed to flow through India, making it either the Indus or the Ganges, and the fourth is said to be in or near Ethiopia, meaning most believe it to be the Nile. But these are traditional guesses, right? A lot of people have their own ideas about where the Garden of Eden actually is or was.
1: For centuries, people have looked everywhere from the depths of the Persian Gulf to rural Missouri and even the planet Mars.
3: The Mormons, for instance, teach that after being driven out of Eden, Adam and Eve settled into a land known as adam on aman which is located in modern-day Missouri. Joseph Smith is said to have received a divine revelation upon witnessing a rock formation that resembled an altar, that this place was where Adam blessed his descendants and made offerings to God. Then there's archaeologist Yaris Zerens, who in 1987 told the Smithsonian that the story of Adam and Eve's expulsion from the Garden was a metaphor for society's transition from hunting and gathering to agriculture. He posited that the literal Garden of Eden is now underwater at the head of the Persian Gulf where the Tigris and Euphrates rivers empty into the sea. And then there's Armenia. Many people, including the famous English poet Lord Byron, believe that the Garden of Eden was at the origin of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, in Armenia, rather than at the end of the Persian Gulf. They also point to the fact that Mount Ararat, the final resting place for Noah's Ark, is located on the Armenian plain as well. So what's the truth? Well, that's one bit of knowledge that the serpent's apple didn't seem to grant us. Ironic, isn't it? Check out one of our newest videos right here! Plus, even more Grunge videos about your favorite stuff are coming soon. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit the bell so you don't miss a single one.
4: Life on Earth. Scientists have been studying it for centuries, creating a timeline from when the first single-cell beings emerged in primordial waters to today, when billions of humans populate the surface. But there's one question they've never been able to answer with 100 percent certainty. How exactly did it begin? Most scientists think it started from a complex chemical reaction in the water of the early Earth. Some argue for a more intelligent hand guiding the process. The only thing that's sure is that no one's sure, and everyone has an opinion. But what if the origin of life on Earth didn't actually come from Earth? Could life on Earth be the product of extraterrestrials? So far, we don't have any conclusive proof for or against life outside of Earth. No contact has been made, and no DNA or fossils from other life forms have been discovered. But we've only explored a tiny fragment of the universe out there, almost none of it in person. And the odds that countless planets surrounding countless stars would have no other planets capable of supporting life since the Big Bang is pretty slim. And after billions of years of this universe existing, many of those worlds may not exist anymore. Asteroids, comets, and other interstellar phenomena can immediately bring a crushing end to any world's life forms, as the dinosaurs found out the hard way. But what if the life from those worlds didn't stay on those worlds? The hypothesis is panspermia, which claims that not only does life exist throughout the universe but that it gets carried from world to world by traveling objects like asteroids and comets. The space dust that gets attached to anything traveling through space, even the spaceships that humans send to explore the moon and nearby planets may have microscopic forms of life in them that travel to other worlds and seed them when they land, creating the building blocks of future life on those worlds. But could anything survive in the cold vacuum of space? Well, we couldn't, and neither could most animals on earth. But when you look at smaller animals, some survive climates that could kill humans in seconds. The Pompeii worm lives in deep hydrothermal vents that can reach up to 175 degrees Fahrenheit. The flat bark beetle, which lives in some of the coldest climates in North America, produces natural antifreeze chemicals that help it survive in the winter and enter a sort of stasis, smoothly surviving the coldest parts of the winter while we're fighting over the thermostat. Neither of them could survive in space, but that's not the case for one microscopic creature. The name water bear probably creates cute images of an ursine mammal enjoying a bath in the river, but the real thing is much less cuddly, and also less likely to eat you. Also called a tardigrade, this tiny organism is the only form of life that seems to be able to live anywhere, even in the most extreme conditions. They've been found everywhere from deserts to hot springs, and they may even potentially exist in space, thanks to a crash of a sample from a spaceship on the moon. These tiny, multi-legged creatures can dry up and fall into a state that resembles death but when exposed to water, even decades later they spring back to life. So if life originated from outside Earth, how exactly did it get here? There are a couple of theories of exactly how these building blocks of life arrived on our ancient planet, most of them based around interstellar physics. One theory from a Swedish scientist in 1903 theorizes that the radiation pressure from stars can send particles through space, but this would only work for the smallest particles, and many if not all would be killed off by the radiation. But it's possible that alien bacteria or viruses could survive if shielded from UV radiation. The other main theory is that the particles that led to the creation of life were hitchhikers on rocks, coming into contact with Earth when the rocks crash-landed here. While we know how asteroids, comets, and meteors travel through the galaxy, this is under far more extreme conditions than any life form has been known to survive, surviving in the vacuum of space for years on end before crash-landing. But there is another theory that the alien life forms didn't come here accidentally. What if the alien life out there was intelligent and advanced enough that they could have sent the building blocks of life toward Earth deliberately? The first possibility of this is accidental transport. On Earth, there have been countless cases of people throwing trash into the water and having it swept somewhere completely different, often endangering animal life in the process. It's possible that an alien civilization would have been advanced enough to send waste products into space and dump them on an uninhabited world that, thanks to the trace DNA on the waste, evolved into earth as we know today. But other theories say that seeding of earth might be much more deliberate. Directed panspermia is the idea that alien species created life on Earth via transport of organisms from their world. The idea of a deliberate seeding of this planet sidesteps a lot of the issues with the other theories, because the aliens would have been able to shield the samples for their trip, eliminating the threat that the journey through space or the cosmic radiation would kill off the organisms before they ever reached their target. The alien species, if advanced enough to send samples into space, would be able to send them at high speeds that would allow them to reach their destination in a more feasible time. So why? Why would aliens want to seed our planet? The first possible theory is that the aliens were looking to secure and protect life in space by spreading it among a larger area. Even the strongest civilization could be felled by a natural disaster or a stray comet, and when life exists on more than one world, it's insured against the whims of the cosmos. Of course, that was three and a half billion years ago, and the odds are good that any alien civilization that seeded Earth at the dawn of our world would be long gone themselves by now. But what if they weren't? There have been many theories about aliens making contact with Earth, but thus far no conclusive proof has been found regardless of how many people say they were abducted by a flying saucer. But if aliens are out there and may even have ties to the creation of life on Earth, then why haven't they made contact yet? One theory is that they simply don't want to. They're more than happy just to watch. This is called the zoo hypothesis, and it states that we're all essentially living in a giant terrarium. Whatever these aliens are, they have technology far beyond ours, and they're perfectly happy watching us as our still primitive planet slowly evolves. If we don't know about their existence, it's because they don't want us to know yet. So, are there any problems with this idea? Just one big one. Have you ever tried to get a group of people to agree on anything? Trying to get ten people to agree on one place to eat is hard enough. Imagine how difficult it would be to get an entire civilization to agree to keep a secret forever without any of them breaking the code of silence and broadcasting their existence to our human zoo. It would have had to last millions of years of humans and their ancestors existing, and likely countless generations of the aliens not breaking their own protocol. That's why many people say the zoo hypothesis resembles creationism and religious theory more than panspermia. But have the aliens truly maintained a hands-off approach all this time? A popular idea, but maybe not so popular among scientists, is that Earth has been visited repeatedly by advanced alien civilizations that may have interacted with humans before recorded history. Called the Ancient Astronauts' Theory, it often has ties to various religions. After all, how many religious texts refer to powerful and mysterious beings descending from the heavens and performing miracles? But is there any evidence of these interstellar visits? If you watch a program called Ancient Aliens, A lot. This popular documentary-style series looks at evidence of alien interactions with humans, with a particular focus on early civilizations and the idea that certain technology and buildings couldn't have been constructed by pre-industrial humans alone. They look at mythology of giants and gods, massive structures like the pyramids that show up across the world, and technology that seems too advanced for the time, like the massive clockwork Antikythera mechanism of ancient Greece. With 16 seasons and almost 200 episodes, there are a lot of believers, but just as many detractors. The ancient astronauts' theory, and ancient aliens in particular, has been criticized for using selective evidence and disregarding the contributions of early native cultures. The construction methods for megalithic structures like Stonehenge, the Great Pyramids of Egypt, and the Mayan Pyramids have been investigated and largely proven. While there's still a lot of mysteries surrounding ancient architecture, like the giant stone spheres of Costa Rica, few of them seem to point to aliens, but that hasn't stopped the speculation from growing. We don't know for sure if aliens have visited Earth, but there's a chance that their DNA is still with us. We might be all descended from aliens if their organisms seeded our world eons ago. The most likely scenario if we evolved from alien microorganisms is that we're so radically different from the original species by now that there'd be no similarity anymore. If an alien species did seed Earth deliberately, then the odds are it didn't seed Earth with the most advanced form of life on its planet, but one of the smallest and easiest to transport. The continuum of life on Earth indicates that life likely started with microorganisms swimming in the water before turning into larger forms of life and eventually heading onto land- a far cry from the aliens who might have organized Earth's seeding. But could humanity's ties to alien DNA be a lot more recent? Many proponents of the ancient astronauts' theory suggest that the aliens may have continued to visit Earth up until the early days of humanity and may have actually bred with humans, leaving traces of their DNA in ours. While the idea of aliens on a pleasure cruise looking for some exotic party times might be relatable, especially if they have common DNA with those party kids who hit Cancun every spring break, there are a lot of holes in the theory. The aliens would have to still be around and in a similar shape billions of years after Earth was first seeded, and they'd have to be genetically compatible with humans despite those billions of years of evolution. So no, it's not very likely that your great, 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 great grandpa was an alien. But that doesn't mean this kind of interbreeding between humans and their distant relatives isn't possible. Recent studies indicate that human fossils have traces of DNA from ancient humans that preceded Homo sapiens. The more famous Neanderthals are in there, but so are an extinct species of archaic humans we know relatively little about. The Denisovans, only identified in 2010 in Siberia, they have been identified from a few bones and teeth that are distinct from other species. When ancient genomes were sequenced for the first time, scientists found fragments of genetic code that didn't match up with Homo sapiens. Neanderthals were quickly identified, in fact it's estimated that most humans besides Africans have up to 4% of trace Neanderthal DNA in their genome. No one knows exactly what population of ancient humans may be lurking in the recesses of the human genome, both ancient and modern. What we do know is that modern humans are a complex mix of influences that made us what we are. Could one of those influences be from beyond our solar system? We don't have proof of that yet. But the human genome is a mystery, and we don't have proof that it's impossible either. For more on Alien Visitors, check out This Will Happen When The Government Confirms Aliens Exist. Or watch How Did the Dinosaurs Die for more on the chaos objects from space can cause.